The situation in the Grand Sud of Madagascar is absolutely dire. Madagascar could be facing the world's first climate-induced famine. That's what the United Nations warned in 2021 about the African country's southern region, also known as the Grand Sud. The UN estimates at least 30,000 people are experiencing life-threatening levels of hunger. Survival for many families depends on plates of insects or cactus leaves. There is nothing else left to eat. And climate scientists say rising temperatures will only worsen the region's food insecurity. Madagascar is extremely vulnerable to climate change, even though its carbon emissions are some of the lowest. It is absolutely unjust that people who have done nothing to cause this crisis are now literally every day facing the fight for their lives because of the global climate crisis. Though the Grand Sud saw some rain early this year, more than 61% of the territory is still affected by drought. So how are people there surviving climate change? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Joe Stepanski, and I'm a producer on the news desk at Al Jazeera English, based in Doha. Joe recently traveled to one of the three arid regions of the Grand Sud of Madagascar. The Androy region in, in Madagascar is very large, the very southern tip of Madagascar. And it is very disconnected from the rest of the country, particularly from the capital where most of the wealth is concentrated. And it first came onto my radar, obviously, as part of covering climate change, covering places where climate change is creating, you know, hardship, be it either food insecurity or extreme storms. So to get there at the time I went, which was in, in March of 2022, I had to fly via Paris into the capital. And then from there down to a port city called Fort Dauphin. And then from there, it's about a four-hour drive on very rugged roads on a pretty much a completely dissolved highway that to get to Android region. Mm. That's four hours in a, a four-by-four Jeep going up and down this cratered road. Along the way, you're pretty much seeing stalled out sedans, bush cars full of people that have sunk into these pits and are having trouble getting out. It's extremely far-flung. The villages, there's a few larger towns that have some kind of post-colonial infrastructure. The capital of Android region is Ambovambe, and there's a hospital, a high school, a few hotels, a market, and not too much more beyond that. And then from there, most of the villages can be anywhere from a 45-minute drive, again, on, on very rough terrain, like best traveled by 4x4, or and can be anywhere in two hours, three hours. It can take an entire day to visit one or two cities from Ambavambe. The remoteness of it makes it all the more worth covering and why it's important that you went there. So let's just dive right into why that was. Last year, Madagascar made headlines because the southern part of the country went through the worst drought the region had seen in 40 years. And at the time, you had the World Food Program, WFP, warning that the situation could very well be the world's first famine powered by climate change. First of all, what did you make of that announcement? And then what did you see? Was there still evidence of that? Yeah, absolutely. So normally when we think of famines, we think of 
conflict. And that's essentially the, was the WFP's point that every famine in modern history has been caused by some aspect of conflict. And that's just wasn't the case in Madagascar. So obviously hearing that you think this is a really crazy, interesting, disturbing fact that this is happening in our modern world. But then when you dig into it a little too, it's so complex because you're trying to figure out what does that actually mean? How do you determine that a famine is, is caused by climate change? That's really a part of this ongoing conversation that, that I found really interesting when I was researching more about this and speaking to more people about it, how climate change and the effects of it are playing on and creating these hardships for already marginalized communities and then how those communities got there in the first place. You mentioned the people that you spoke to. One of them is named Sambo, a village chief, village elder. Tell me about him and what you learned. So he's the chief of Berenti village. And I went at a very strange time. The rainy season in the south is from about November to April. So this is the time when you're planting the main grain harvest for the year. They're hoping that there will be enough rain to make that harvest successful. And I'd actually visited after a cyclone had just come through the area. So you would think a cyclone has just passed through this area. The drought's over. The, this, the hardship's over. But it's just so much more complex than that. So in Sambo's village, in Berenti village, the cyclone had essentially completely destroyed their crops, washed away the topsoil. We plant corn, pumpkin, cassava, but everything was taken away by the water. There is nothing right now. There's no crops anymore. We'll have to do it again. We will look for seeds once again, if we can find it. So they had really were pinning a lot of hope to this. This is after a year of unspeakable hardship. He told me about a uh, elderly woman who collapsed while she was out in the fields trying to collect tubers and digging for roots, which is a way people survive when they run out of food, when there are no crops, when they don't have money to purchase things in the markets. So this extremely hard year where they've essentially become completely reliant on aid. It's unclear how long that aid will continue to go, especially with the current situation of the world and obviously with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and what that's done to the global economy and to the creating a global food crisis within us. I think it really struck me just how much Berenti Village and Sambo and the people who live there were at the crossroads, two different sides of extreme weather that are both making their life extremely difficult and creating an extreme hardship there. Can you walk me through that? Because the residents of this town and of this region are hoping for rain and then rain comes, but it comes in the form of a cyclone. And so, of course, it brought rain, but it also brought destruction. So walk me through why that rain was not what they needed. Yeah, exactly like you said, it brought hope in that whenever they see rain, there's happiness there. And, and it does offer a certain temporary reprieve to water access. But that reprieve essentially lasts as long as that water is either in puddles or can be collected in some ways. And then beyond that, it evaporates and it's gone. And there's no way to harness it and keep using it going forward. And then you have that point of destruction when the storm first hits and the World Weather Attribution Network, which is a group of reputable climate scientists who have created a kind of speedy assessment of extreme weather events and if they can be linked to climate change, assessed these storms this year. And they said that the volume of rain had increased due to climate change. So not the frequency of the storms, but the volume of the rain. 
but another huge factor of this is when you're relying on crops and these grain harvests, it's really about when the rain falls as well. It's not just about the rainfall, but it's about being timed right in this cycle. And in the Grand Sud, 95% of the population relies on agriculture, livestock, and fishing for their livelihoods. So this year, when those rains did come, they came very late in the cycle to yield the types of crops that would generally be needed to essentially carry you through until the next grain harvest. What is this year looking like in terms of the drought and hunger? So this year is definitely better than the beginning of 2021. This year, with some of that rain, there was more vegetation than had been there previously. People who had been there told me, but it's still insufficient. It's still essentially a population that is completely reliant on aid to keep them from being in these worst scenarios, which essentially is what happened last year. 30,000 people went into the highest category on the integrated food security phase classification, which is catastrophe or famine. And there's this outlook that Madagascar is already a very poor country. About anywhere from two-thirds to 80% of the population lives in poverty across the entire country. In the Grand Sud, that's at about 90%. There had been some progress in their economy. The pandemic came. They essentially closed themselves off from the world. That undermined any of that progress. Since they've reopened, there was again some indications of progress and growth. And then now with Ukraine and oil prices, they're less likely to have trade partners who will be buying in the same way they had been before. The outlook isn't great. So food insecurity is increasing because of the drought and these weather events. And in your reporting for Al Jazeera.com, you note that about 309,000 children in the Grand Sud were expected to suffer acute malnutrition from November 2021 through August 2022. So did you talk to parents about what they're dealing with? How hard is it to put food on the table? So I visited in Ambavambe, there's a pediatric hospital that's particularly for children who are suffering from complications from acute malnutrition. So these are infants normally or toddlers who essentially require regular treatment to come back from the state they're in from malnutrition. It's usually a months long process of getting therapeutic milk carefully administered every day. And the people I spoke to there, it's in, in some ways, I mean, their stories are all harrowing, but in some ways, they're lucky that they've been able to connect with this service and are getting this treatment. Having that kind of level of treatment is very rare. One mother I spoke to, she had come with her son because he was suffering diarrhea. A doctor had visited her village. He identified the situation and said, your son needs to come with us to get this treatment. But essentially, that was a trade-off that her other children, she wouldn't be there to help them find food. Oh, no. She essentially said that her kids would be searching for roots at which they either find tubers that they can eat or find roots that they're able to sell for kindling or for, uh, yeah, to create, you know, fires at local markets. So she's essentially left them 
alone to fend for themselves. And that's, she was lucky to get a ride from, again, this local aid worker, but another woman had walked eight hours to get there to get her daughter's treatment. Another woman had sold her remaining jewelry to travel to, she she lived too far away to walk, but had sold it to, to pay for a ride to get there. So actually her grandson could be treated. And just, again, to remind that this is a better situation than it had been through a lot of 2021. So this is the improved situation, uh, which is quite disturbing. Joe says that during his visit, he began asking why people stayed in the region instead of leaving for a better life in a bigger city. And when I asked about that, essentially people there said that the reason that they didn't leave is because this is as bad as they can remember. So they have a hope that things will improve, that there is a belief that the land can provide and that they can survive there. It's still, you know, people's ancestral home. And so they still feel a connection to it. Yeah, of course. They still feel a a desire to live there and find a way to live. and, And there's a belief that they can do that going forward. So you talked to experts in climate and you reviewed some of the data from the UN. What do we know of how much more challenging things could get when it comes to climate change? Because climate change is not getting better. Yeah, it's a really hard question to, to answer because, as we mentioned earlier, in the last 40 years, this has been the most prolonged period of drought. That's according to Chris Funk, who's a uh, director at the Climate Hazard Center at University of California, Santa Barbara. And so you've now had this extended period, and he talked about this concept of climate shocks. When you have these repeated shocks, they're much, much more dangerous and damaging than when, you know, you just have one bad drought because households have some reserves, they have some coping mechanisms. But when you get like three years in a row, then those resources are are really depleted. So it's a huge question of, as you said, it's extremely unlikely that the situation is going to reverse itself. So a lot of this goes to these pushes for adaptation funds for developing countries. The United Nations Environment Program established the Adaptation Fund under the Kyoto Protocol. Its aim is to help vulnerable communities in developing countries adapt to climate change by financing projects and programs. It's a way for developed countries, which tend to be the biggest pollution emitters in the world, to share responsibility with countries like Madagascar, which are experiencing extreme weather events due to climate change. There are some pilot projects in four countries in Africa, including Madagascar, but not in the Android region. And so that's one big part of it is this push for adaptation funds, which was a big conversation at COP26, the UN Climate Forum in Glasgow. And then there's also this kind of conversation about this idea of a loss and damage fund. So instead of something that's just helping you adapt moving forward, it's also some sort of recompensation for the damages already caused to a country that doesn't have the means on its own to adapt to these major extreme weather events. There's a push particularly by a group called the Vulnerable 20, which were created in 2015. It's essentially a group of developing countries that are the most vulnerable climate change. They just recently came out with a study indicating that on average, 
developing countries who are on the kind of front lines of extreme weather caused by climate change have lost about 20% or about one fifth of their wealth in the last two decades because of these extreme weather events. So I guess the outlook is just bad right now. The government is also focusing on helping the region. Madagascar's president, Andre Rajolina, has announced some measures to help those who are more vulnerable. Because of what happened in 2021 and the attention turned there, there has been a noticeable shift from the current administration of President Andre Rajolina. He essentially came out with this raft of ways to address the situation in the South and kind of there's this very much an attitude of local officials I spoke to or ministers from his government that I spoke to of things are actually changing. They're genuinely going to build more water pipelines, develop the roads, create more infrastructure for health, even develop what they call a green belt of vegetation to stop some of the desertification or the erosion of farmland that leads to this very dry conditions that make it harder to plant things. And I think there's a tentative belief from development officials I spoke to that this is something that they can seize on and there is hope there. But there's this, there's always a problem in Madagascar of corruption and there's been a history of that, which is something that has always made international partners hesitant about their investments. So you mentioned what the international community is doing or could do, what the government of the president, Andre Rajolina, is doing or has pledged to do. What about on the local individual level? So right now, there's a good amount of either European Union, United Nations agencies have various forms of kind of investments and projects that are aimed at doing things like helping women develop skills to make money outside of agriculture, doing things like providing more resilient seeds and training on farming techniques that are proven to be more resilient during periods of drought. And there are also local organizations helping out. During his visit, Joe met a woman named Soafara Selambo. She and her nephew got funding for a project via MadLab, a think tank based in southern Madagascar. Salambo is somebody from the region who has really taken it on themselves and is passionate about seeing a project through. And she's essentially done this in her home village of Arada. They have three fields there where they create these crescent-shaped ditches, which they then plant acacia trees in. And the idea is as the acacia trees grow, they'll hold more moisture in the ground, but also that the ditches themselves are able to collect water as it goes. And in the overall scheme of things there, it's a pretty, it's a pretty small effort. But I think Salambo really views herself as somebody who can inspire other people within these villages. If in every region there are women who are taking responsibility or leading the region, I think that there wouldn't be this famine. We women, we know what is hurting us, and even what hurts men. Also, especially our kids and our families. I make an effort to be an independent woman, to not depend on men. I think Salambo's attitude in general, just her resilience and her kind of clear-eyed view of the situation I found was extremely affecting. So, Joe, you are from the United States. You live in Doha now. Before this, you were covering news in New York City. So this is a stretch from what you used to cover. 
When you think back over your reporting time in Madagascar, because you saw so much and talked to so many people, what stands out to you the most? It's a good question. I think that when we were in the village, and it's just hard to wrap your head around why someone would want to stay here. And I think in researching all of this and learning about this and talking to people, you can get caught up in this idea that this region is just not a region for people to live in, just not hospitable. It's had a history of being difficult. But I think that kind of loses some of the reality of it, which is that people have been able to survive there, have had ways of surviving there for decades. And a lot of people are only now finding that way of life is being completely challenged by these factors that are just way beyond them. And that's The Take. To see more of Joe's reporting and pictures from Madagascar, head over to aljazeera.com. We'll also post a link on our social accounts. We're at AJE Podcasts. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Nikin Oliai, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, Ruby Zaman, Chloe Lee, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Al-Milek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>